This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 5th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Well, today we're going to be rejoined by one of my favorite Washington insiders, and that's saying a lot, as I don't have too many of those in my inner circle. I'm speaking, of course, about Bruce Melman of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, a premier inside the Beltway lobbying firm, for a look back on Bruce's projections from his last visit here back in August of 2020, as well as a look ahead. We'll talk about the political landscape now, just 100 or so days into the Biden presidency and some of the many changes in the air since Bruce's last visit. Moreover, we'll talk about the many more changes that are on the horizon. Although I would suggest that much has changed since August, Bruce will tell us that according to data, things are actually very much the same. We'll check in on all of that in just a few minutes, but first, my sincere thanks to Wonder Woman, Clarissa Wyndham Bradstock, for a stellar showing here last week on Franchise Today. Clarissa is one of the humblest people I know, but she is also a powerhouse when it comes to getting it done, whatever the it is. Well, she got it said and done right here last week, and we very much appreciate her for sharing her wisdom right here on Franchise Today. So back in August, when Bruce Melman joined us the first time, as a nation, we were deep into lockdown, and both our business model and we as individuals were very much at the deep end of the pool, up to our necks in uncharted waters. Back then, we were wondering if, when, and how schools would reopen. If, when, and how professional and college sports might safely resume, and if, when, and how we'd ever reclaim our lives. Well, oh so many months later, some of those things are finally starting to loosen up, but a great many other things have and continue to change, and I'd proffer some pretty dramatically. We've seated a new president, and with that, our culture has been moving through some dramatic changes, as well as the advent of cancel culture, woke corporate America, social consciousness, and a wide open border to our South. No matter which side of these issues you identify with, the fact is that these cultural shifts are upon us, and with them, the wonderment of what comes next as pertains to civil rights and such constitutional staples as free speech and the right to bear arms. Well, Bruce hit us with a tsunami of info back in August, and I'm banking on a command performance yet again today. I'm joined in two minutes or less with that update from Bruce Melman. My bet is that this week's episode will once again prove to be fast-paced and fascinating. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. We are all familiar with Vistage, YPO, and EO. Well, now comes Zor Forum, a somewhat similar type of executive group, but this one comes with a twist. Zor Forum groups are exclusively for franchisors. Imagine a peer group for sharing and networking on a platform built exclusively for franchise executives. Zor Forum members are afforded unparalleled access to best practices and some of the brightest minds within the franchising world through regular meetings and a dedicated communications platform. In this post-COVID world, a franchise-specific mastermind or peer group is an endeavor worth making time for. 
Zorforum groups of 6 to 10 will bring leaders together that are in similar situations but with exclusivity in terms of their competitive sets so that each can openly help others benefit from their respective knowledge, perspective, and experience with no fear of competitive loss. Network, learn, strategize, and remain motivated along your journey. Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zorforum. Learn more at zorforum.org. That's www.zorforum.org. Bruce Melman is the founder and CEO of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen & Thomas, the Washington, D.C. lobbying firm that Bruce founded after serving in leadership positions in politics, policy, and business. Bruce's firm helps Fortune 500 companies and innovative startups understand, anticipate, and navigate ever-evolving policy, environment, and political trends likely to impact the global marketplace. His quarterly updates on political trends are widely read by business leaders and political observers across the country and have been frequently covered in leading publications, including the Washington Post, Axios, Politico, CNN, Fortune, and the Daily Caller. Now, thanks to his introduction to me last year by recently retired IFA president and CEO Robert Crisanti, I am proud to add Franchise Today to Bruce's illustrious list of media credits. Bruce Melman, welcome back to Franchise Today. It's uh, an honor to be invited back. Thank you, Stan. When we talked last, the world was a different place, Bruce. This has been maybe a half year or maybe eight or nine months. We were looking ahead in August at the time to what the new year would look like. We were in the midst of COVID lockdown. We had an upcoming major presidential election. We had a lot of things on the table, but we were looking from a world that looks a lot different than it looks to me today. What's that look like to you? I think everything has changed and nothing has changed. The big broad drivers of so much of our politics, of our policy, of our lives, uh, I feel like remain the same. Technology is, is moving faster. It accelerated during the pandemic, but that future is coming sooner than, than even before. But it was still the trend that we were on. And, you know, and look, I'm, I'm an optimist. So I think of things like mRNA vaccines and I'm excited. Geopolitically, we, we've been dealing with the post-Cold War, post-globalism is perfect mindset, and we've seen populism and nationalism rise around the world. That trend persists, probably got accelerated, particularly amidst the lockdowns and, and vaccine hoarding and diplomacy. You know, And likewise, our nation remains a, uh, a place that's changing, and that defines so much of our politics. The parties are changing, but even socially, we're both becoming more tolerant and more intolerant of things taking taking too long to become fair and equitable. You know, the old saying that the pendulum never stops in the middle. We had four years of make America great again. We had four years of a much different feeling around what America is or should be than we see now. And we see some telling us that the pandemic was weaponized not by China, but by a party of the U.S. government to lock us down and make us more needy and dependent on government. There are all kinds of people with all kinds of theories. But you're a data guy and you look at data and the data tells you what that's different than what some of these conspiracy theorists would espouse. Oh, gosh, Dan, I don't know. We have time to debunk all the conspiracists. That, but, you know, since people have had civilizations, you have crazy people trying to explain things, not with the obvious answer, not with the proven answer, but with conspiratorial answers. We've had animal-born diseases and pandemics the entirety of human history. The idea that this one somehow is different is insane. And there are always going to be some number of people 
people who uh, are going to see UFOs or conspiracies or other things. Honestly, it's not, I don't think it's the best use of business leaders planning and thinking time to worry about whether or not diseases, whether COVID or AIDS are U.S. Army productions. They're not. There are some too that would say that corporate America and the woke revolution is something that's brand new and different than this era. But you would say otherwise from the data on that too, wouldn't you? Well, look, again, it's a bit of a matter of degree, but over the course of history, from time to time, business leaders have decided that they needed to speak up about big social, cultural, or political issues. I mean, you can go back, take a look at the people who signed the Declaration of Independence. More than a third of them were planters, or merchants, business leaders of their day. That's a pretty uh, woke of its time thing to say. Take a look at uh, apartheid, which was that racist regime in South Africa. And ultimately, one of the keys to breaking its back was when the international business community, very much led in the United States, finally got on board with the activists who had been struggling for decades and said, we're not going to do business with a regime in which racism is the core bedrock principle. It feels to me, we, we may or may not have hit sort of peak woke, as it were. There's, on the one hand, you can draw draw a line from Ferguson, Missouri to the murder of George Floyd and point out there is clearly still problems from time to time in how police do their jobs. There are still many ways in which America doesn't live up to its ideal of being a nation where all men are created and women are created equal. At the same time, I, I'm an optimist. I see lots of positive progress. I remain hopeful. Efforts by business leaders today to talk about trying to be a, a supporting force to end systemic racism, to create more opportunities for women in the workplace, to help the world deal with climate change can be good. Also, business leaders can get out of position and, and find themselves becoming NGO debate societies, which is a challenge for the businesses. What about the role in the media Bruce, how have you seen that change? Because I don't think that that's something where you could say that things are the same. The media plays a much different role in my mind today with molding a narrative than reporting the news. What do you see there? You know, on the one hand, I agree with you. It feels very different than when I was a kid. You know, Walter Cronkite would be one of the three networks that we would all watch. And with our families, we would be informed by the media. Uh, today, we're far more likely to be affirmed watching Fox if we're right of center or MS. NBC or CNN if we're left of center, and we seek out those that agree with our worldview. That troubles me. It's amplified on social media where outrage is what goes viral. At the same time, if you go back in American history, the kind of the Cronkite era is the aberration, as it turns out. I mean, remember William Randolph Hearst? You give me the pictures, I'll give you the war about the Spanish-American mm -hmm. war. And you know, the media at the end of the day is a business. Journalists, many journalists view their job as trying to be as objective as possible, trying to report facts, but they're also people. They also have their own biases. In a perfect world, the media would build institutions that think first and that fact check first. At the same time, it's a competitive business. If you really wanted thoughtful plotting stuff, you might go, sorry, friends, to PBS, except that's not what people watch. People like getting worked up. If you don't want to watch sports like I tend to do at night, you're more likely to want to watch Hannity or Maddow. They're going to get your blood flowing. They're going to get your, uh, you know, your heart pumped up. You're going to follow your friends often on, on social media who send you the stories that make you angry or upset. The problem is that leads to these partisan filter bubbles. And I think part of the challenge we've got is it's a political system designed by the founders to require compromise and a 
media environment that says compromise is surrender and that wants ideological purity all of the time. That's how you fundraise. That's how you're a TV star. You bring sports into the conversation and I'll bite the bait. There are those that want to get their blood boiling by Hannity, Rachel Maddow, or Tucker Carlson. But then too, there are those who look for their escape from that by sitting down to a football game or a baseball game. And we've got Major League Baseball politicizing Georgia state election law. And we've got football players with the back all the way to Colin Kaepernick and now LeBron voicing his opinions and injecting the narrative of the media into our protected space, if you will. Where does that go that's good? I'm torn. On the one hand, I'm a middle-aged white male in comfortable suburbia. When you hear Tim Scott, the Republican African-American senator from South Carolina talk, he's been stopped and pulled over as a United States senator by the police 17 times for being African-American while driving. That's never happened to me. So if I'm an athlete and I see people my age who look like me getting pulled over because they look like me, maybe it's happened to me as an athlete. And I realize that I've got a platform in the same way, Stan, you've got your podcast. If you felt like there were wrongs in society, you would probably try to leverage your podcast to do your best to bring attention to the things that were wrong and to maybe try to fix them, even though at its core, it's about manufacturing and manufacturing trends. So I'm pretty sympathetic to athletes. My hero is still Jackie Robinson in a lot of ways in baseball, who was called all kind of horrible stuff and got booed and hissed. And he just put his head down and by being one of the best, grittiest, toughest players on the field, demonstrate his equality, but that's a long time ago. And these days, I don't begrudge an athlete who realizes that they've got celebrity and they've got the capability of using that for good. The challenge is, as with athlete celebrity or a CEO, you can't fight every issue all of the time. At the end of the day, you also have a core job and a core responsibility. And what business leaders are really wrestling with is when do we weigh in and when is it important, perhaps? Maybe something we'll write a personal check to, but not proper for us as the head of an organization, a business organization to weigh in on. And likewise for athletes, in theory, athletes could weigh in on that. They could weigh in on guns. They could weigh on on racial questions. They could weigh in on climate change, but that's not their job. So I'm torn. I think silence is not fair to ask of a LeBron necessarily, but I think if LeBron decides that he's going to start having a different NGO sponsor his kind of workout jersey every day, he's biting off more issues than makes sense for him to chew if he wants to be effective. Bruce, we've covered some of the myths that you've published in your latest infographic, The 12 Myths and Facts About Business Engagement on Social and Political Issues. I'm going to ask you to circle back on some of those others. But before you do that, just give me the postmortem as you see it on the 2020 elections, both the general for the president, as well as what happened with the Senate runoffs. And whether you think this ended the way it should, is trust something that's going to get restored? And how long might that take? Well, it depends when you define the end. It didn't end the way it should for the first time in my lifetime and arguably in American history, we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. The January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, where a mob with zip ties calling for death to the vice president and death to the Speaker of the House overwhelmed a poorly prepared police force inspired by right of center politicians, including the president of the United States. That's not supposed to happen. The election was free and fair. Donald Trump, rather than being proud of getting the second most votes in American history, decided that every state he lost was fraud and every state he won was fair and properly done. That's foolish. It was rejected by every single court that looked at it, and there aren't facts there to back that up. So that ended poorly. I think everybody also needs to recognize, though, especially my friends on the left of center, that 
while Joe Biden did get 81 million votes, the most in American history, 74 million and change Americans voted for Donald Trump. They have reasons that they did. Some are worried about globalization. Some are worried about the digital economy and whether they're being left behind. Some are worried about political correctness and the sense that there is this cancel culture where they're not free to think or say what they want. Others are worried about socialism. And even though I don't think most people thought of Joe Biden as a socialist, they worry about the left wing of the left wing with the Democratic Party. And so I'm very frustrated and disappointed that as Americans, we didn't stop and conclude a few things. First, we should celebrate the highest voter turnout since the year 1900. That's good. We want people to vote. Second, we should recognize both candidates got a whole lot of votes. That tells us a lot about how Americans feel. Third, what was interesting to me is that while Biden won 81 million votes, the Democratic Party lost seats in the House. That's really rare. Only Jack Kennedy lost more as a percent of the House delegation while winning the White House. And he, of course, won a squeaker in 1960. What that really tells me is that amidst this pandemic, Americans were voting for less change. There was a desire to say, you know, the Democratic Party agenda in the House, some of the real progressive folks are running on. We're not we're not trying to buy into that right now. But at the same time, Donald Trump is such a disruptor and we're in the middle of a pandemic. We want to calm it down. We want somebody who doesn't look to start a a firestorm on Twitter every day. We want somebody who's going to make the pandemic their number one and their number two thing and not be tweeting about Rosie O'Donnell. And so I viewed this as an effort by voters to say, let's hand the keys to responsible parties who are going to drive safely at a time when we're all scared. What are your thoughts on those 75 or so million voters that did vote for Trump and the silence that seems to be prevalent from that? faction of the electorate. It seems to me that it's gone quiet, surprisingly quiet. And I'm wondering where all those people might be and what it is they're doing to reset themselves to the facts as we see them today moving forward. Are you at all surprised by that? Or am I misreading what I feel is a silence on the part of the right? Well, first, I might dispute the idea that it's a faction. I think among the 74 million, you have some who adore Donald Trump, the man. You have some who think that Trump, the man, is disappointing and not the type of moral leader you want, but thought he had the policies right, you know, who were maybe traditional conservatives who wished he was more like Reagan and less the way he was. Some who were just, who were worried about whether it's the Biden agenda or the Bernie Sanders agenda that they thought would get embraced by President Biden or President Biden's age or a variety of reasons. So I think the people who voted for Donald Trump, even in reelect, span a really wide gamut. And I think they defy individual identification. As for who's quiet or how, I'm not quite sure what it is somebody would be looking for for from them. There's go watch Fox and people are every night complaining about something that Joe Biden has said or done. I think part of the challenge, part of the difference between the right in 2021 and the left in 2017 is that Trump was a provocateur. Every day he looked to pick fights. Biden in his style, in his not being in the media a lot, in the words he looks to use is very much trying to be a calm, non-provocative guy. It's his agenda is pretty surprisingly progressive, really aggressive. He and his team have decided to go big, go fast. But to watch him tell it, to see him, it's the antithesis of the past four years. It's Uncle Joe. It's fairly brilliant by stagecraft by the administration. But part of the reason that you may wonder why isn't the right up in arms is because Joe Biden, in his words and in his actions, is trying not to provoke in the exact way that Donald Trump, from the day he came down the escalator, it was all about provoking. 
I guess back to what I said at the start, the pendulum never stops in the middle. I'll tell you what let's do, Bruce. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you to share some of your recommendations for business leaders on how best to engage on social and political issues and share some of your best practices. We're talking with Bruce Melman, and we will be right back after this. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle, providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice dice and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball, but there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself it's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. And I'm back with Bruce Melman, CEO of Melman Castagnetti. Rosen and Thomas, experts, no matter which side of the aisle you are on, in helping to guide startups and enterprise level organizations navigate the course that government policies may have on the future and their roadmaps moving forward in enterprise. Bruce, you've laid out some best practices that I would ask you perhaps to spend a few minutes sharing with the audience. No matter which side they feel attached to, there are rules of engagement or recommendations that business leaders, best practices that they can learn from. And I'd sure like you to share some of those here. I'm happy to, Stan. And something that's been surprising, as a rule, our firm, half Republicans, half Democrats, is hired by folks who are interested in the discussion. Maybe it's on tax policy or healthcare policy or trade policy and trying to figure out how they can be heard in those sort of debates. Yet over the last couple of years, I've increasingly been getting calls from CEOs and general counsels where they're saying, you know, our workforce really wants us to weigh in on this immigration question. Or we're hearing from more and more customers that they think we need to stand up against these proposed bathroom laws that we tend to believe are hostile to LGBTQ Americans. And we're trying to figure out, because we're a business, when to weigh in, when not to weigh in, because we've got stakeholders all over the place. And a couple of years of giving them advice led to the recommendations that conclude my most recent analysis. And they include a couple. First, be true to your word and values. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. That's Captain Obvious, but still true. Be careful. Whatever you say, everybody's going to remember, they're going to record, they're going to hold you to. So trying to spin the world. I mean, Andrew Cuomo was spinning the world and everybody loved how the governor of New York was talking about being a straight talker in dealing with COVID in New York. Turns out they were cooking the books about deaths. His credibility is done. He may or may not finish out his term, but business leaders would likewise be done if they're simply pumping out lies. Decide who are you? What's your brand? What's your value proposition? If it's, for example, if you're, if you're all about the equality of sport like Nike, well then weighing in on Colin Kaepernick actually fits your 
brand. Number two, really urge folks to resist rushing in reflexively. Social media encourages moving and thinking fast. I think these decisions are best made when you take the time, when you pause, when you take a deep breath, when you don't worry about the Twitter news cycle. Understand the policies you're being asked to endorse or to oppose. Hear both sides. When in doubt, take a deep breath. Too often, it feels like folks who, as a business or a political matter, feel like you got to just rush and businesses can get themselves in a lot of trouble. You know, you cross the Rubicon, then where are you going to go? Number three, you need a team that is the team that's the go-to to think about these things. If you may think they're not going to come on your doorstep, they will. They probably already have. But just planning ahead in the same way you need to plan for the potential for supply chain disruptions caused by adverse weather events. Think about what are the types of issues where your workforce, your customers, people in the community might come to you as a business leader and say you should be engaged. Who would be on that team? If the answer is you do it all by yourself, that's not a team. That's not the smartest way to make the best decision. If the answer is it's you and three people who look like you and have the same background as you, you're probably not getting as wide ranging a viewpoint, whether it's three Midwest white male Republicans or three super woke San Francisco Valley progressives. You want both identity and ideology diversity so that you can think these things through. Fourth, and I have six of these, there's safety in numbers. There's wisdom sometimes in crowds. So if you're asked to weigh in, this may be one where you talk to your peers. What are others in your sector doing? What are others in your community doing? If you're the only one acting, maybe you're brave. Maybe it's the right thing to do and others are going to follow you. If every business in the community agrees, you're certainly on safer ground as a political risk matter. And it's a higher percentage likelihood with that amount of diverse consideration in unison that you're on the right side of the issue. Words are words. You can say you care about fill in the blank, climate or racial justice or LGBTQ. How do you treat your workforce? If you say you care about voting rights, but you don't give your own employees employees paid time off to vote? Seems to me the words are kind of empty. If you say you care about the climate, well, what are you doing to minimize the impact you're having on the acceleration of climate change? At the end of the day, the very best inoculation and frankly, the best corporate citizenship aren't press releases. They're not tweets and they're not endorsement of legislation. They're the everyday actions and how you run your business and the types of groups and organizations you align with. I'd much rather have you create a program to give veterans jobs than to say you support legislation by some policymaker who's trying to do something for veterans. Finally, this stuff starts at home. Are you listening to your employees? What's interesting in part when you look at the data is your employees undoubtedly have a very wide range. Maybe you're in a bunch of different cities. They could be different. They are almost surely of different ages where younger folks have a lot more desire to see business leaders engage in social issues. Baby boomers are like, what are you doing? You're a business leader, shut the hell up. And so whether you're going to take a position on issues or not, you should be listening to your employees all of the time. I tend to think the people who say that we don't want to hear the employees' thoughts on politics at all, if that's what's on your employees' mind, you ought to hear them out. It doesn't mean you're going to do what they say, but you should always be listening to your workforce. At the end of the day, that's who you are. Sage advice, Bruce. I've got one more question from a budgetary perspective. So if the Biden administration has tempered down all of the excitement of the four years of the Trump world from a budgetary perspective and a debt perspective, as far Far left as his agenda has moved, how can we withstand the cost of these programs that are so expensive? And how will that change the look of America as we become more and more left-oriented towards socialism than capitalism? Well, I think the last part of your question assumes a level of systemic change that I'm not sure we're going to get to necessarily yet. I've been worried about debt for a couple of decades now. I've been predicting that the rising national debt 
was going to cause runaway inflation and economic collapse for at least 25 years. And I've been wrong for at least 25 years. It doesn't mean I'm going to be wrong forever. It doesn't mean you can borrow forever. I'm not an adherent of modern monetary theory. I worry a lot about it. But let's remember, Stan, that in the year before the pandemic in 2019, with a not socialist president, we had a $1 trillion debt as a result of continuing to spend. The president said he was not going to touch entitlements, while at the same time, a level of tax cuts that I tend to think help economic activity. But hey, the debt was $1 trillion plus, and that is during peace and, according to the president, historic prosperity. So why we need to borrow a trillion in peace and prosperity, that suggests to me neither party has especially clean hands when it comes to fiscal rectitude. I do worry about where we're going, but at the same time, I'm look, I'm a capitalist. I've got my own company. All of my clients are for-profit businesses, but I think something within the system and particularly within the opportunity ladder has broken. It doesn't mean I want to wash my hands of the system by any stretch. Capitalism is by miles the greatest way to promote human progress, but it doesn't mean it's perfect and it doesn't mean it should never change from the way Adam Smith envisioned it back in 1776. The world changes. For example, when you look at America in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you had these new businesses formed called trusts and they were choking off competition. We invented antitrust law during the progressive movement of Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. And at the time, people said, oh my gosh, that's socialist. You've killed capitalism. I don't know about you. I think capitalism had a hell of a run in the 20th century and I think it's still going gangbusters. So for example, a massive systemic change in the early 1900s of antitrust didn't hurt capitalism. It helped capitalism. Likewise, whether it's you know the progressive income tax, direct election of senators, giving women the right to vote, the high school movement, you know, the high school movement was business leaders saying, we don't have the workers we need. We think instead of ending in eighth grade, like all these schools are doing, we think taxpayers should pay for every American child to get a ninth grade through 12th grade education, learning the skills needed for the 20th century. And the opponents said that's socialist. Government has no business doing that. Well, thankfully, those voices didn't win. I don't think having American high schools be what they are, which gave us the best workforce in the 20th century, was socialism, nor do I think it ruined or undermined the capitalist system. In fact, it's what made our economy outperform every other economy around the world. Obviously, world wars and other things had a big impact there too. So again, for me, I'm always looking about how has the world changed? How's technology changed? How has globalization changed things? And what do we have to do so that people can realize the American dream if they work hard, if they play by the rules? And I personally think there are ways in which that's a little bit out of whack. I don't ascribe to all of the changes by any stretch that the Biden folks are doing. But at the same time, I think one of the inspirations for the Biden folks from the campaign and from today is there are things that need fixing. I agree with the proposition there are things that need fixing. I just differ on some of the solutions. And I think it's important for you and for the audience to make sure we don't say anybody who wants to change anything is socialist. Donald Trump ran saying things aren't working and that only he could fix it. Joe Biden said things aren't working. He didn't say only he can fix it, but he said he was going to fix it. What I wish we could do, and I'm praying we get back to, is find a way for not every four years a new team to take the field and put all of their ideas in and jam it in on the other one in party line votes, but rather let's let's make the room to have the Republicans and Democrats able to talk to each other, able to compromise, able to have the best of both ideas and avoid the worst of each. That's what makes the country great. And that's what the founders designed. And part of the reason I think it feels problematic to so many folks is we've gotten away from working together and from compromising. And that's where our strength comes from. I think you just described the best days that I can remember of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill battling it out and then going and having a beer. Would you agree? That's what they always 
say, I'm younger than living those days, but when you read about it, yeah, that's the idea. Look, even Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, who weren't having a beer together, they weren't particularly close, but a lot that happened in 1996 and 1997 was still the product of compromise. I'd prefer a la Tip and Gipper liking each other. I tend to like other people. Many of my best friends are Democrats. They're not a threat to our way of life. They're the loyal opposition. But we've gotten to the point now where you're going to get more retweets if you call the other side radical socialists than if you say, I don't agree with the level of progressivism in all of your policy. But what do you want to do? You want to sell books? You want to get ratings? You want to get advertising? Or you want to offer a thoughtful, calm, measured thing that lowers Americans' blood pressure? Bruce, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one last question on the impact that the border is having on the future as you see it. And any thoughts on that? It's really depressing when you look at the crisis on the border. I mean, it's been true for a really long time that, in fact, forever, that immigrants all around the world want to come to the United States. My ancestors did. Your ancestors did. Donald Trump's ancestors did. Melania Trump did. And her parents came because she was already here. You know, immigration itself is a really good thing, number one. Number two, I'd like to see more of it, though I believe it should be based upon laws and rules that we've all agreed to. And what we ought to be able to have are systems that accommodate, whether it's refugees who really are in danger from where they're coming from, or lawful residents who followed the rules and waited in line. You know, part of the challenge is the legal system has become so nasty. But part of the problem too is some combination of under enforcement of whether it's the laws or the border combined with failure to help the rest of the world and especially Latin America develop more prosperous societies. You know, George W's idea in invading Afghanistan after 9-11 was we can fight ISIS there or we can fight them here. Similarly, we can help people feed their families where they are or we can expect them to show up on our borders. What breaks my hard is when they send their kids with these horrible criminals who take their money to bring their kids to the border. When all said and done, I don't see a solution other than how do we help our neighbors create safe and sufficiently prosperous societies that it's not a better play for them to send their kids. They love their kids. To send your kids with criminals is a level of insane desperation. That's what I'd most like to fix. Bruce, we're about out of time. Before I ask you to share some contact info with the audience, is there anything that I didn't ask that you might wish I did? No, I can't think of anything. Stan, you're always meticulous and thorough. I appreciate it. You know, as for contact, if you never want to hear my voice again, hopefully that's easy. If you find what I had to say interesting, whether you agreed or disagreed interesting, I'd welcome folks to follow me on Twitter at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N. Uh, I myself do everything I can to follow people I like and people I disagree with, but I think are interesting on Twitter. I try not to follow the provocateurs, the people who are all about being ugly and dunking on one another in ways that seem to diminish debate, but I've worked at making sure I'm following people who don't agree with me, but who are thoughtful and who make me think. And if it goes really well, I will reevaluate my viewpoint, usually stick to 80% of it, but I'm smarter for the 20% that having my own viewpoint challenged brings to me. And so hopefully those listening here agree with me 80% and disagree 20. And if I can convince you on some of them, great. And if you can convince me, well, a lot I can do to get smarter. So I'd welcome it. Well said, Bruce. Listen, it's been nine months since the last time we came together and let's do it again as we get closer to the midterms and take a look back at the tail of the tape then and what you think might be coming up for the midterm elections. What do you say? I look forward to it, Stan. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Bruce Melman, thanks for joining us on Franchise today. Well, it's just the beginning of May and it may seem a long way off, but the midterm elections will be upon us sooner than you think. 
When those begin to draw closer, we'll get Bruce back yet again for another tale of the tape, but we've got a lot of real estate to cover before then. Next week, we'll shift gears to a lighter conversation with Leo Resig, CEO of Atmosphere, the world's leading streaming media company, which, among other things, serves the franchise community with free TV content at thousands of franchised locations. Until then, keep making great things happen for yourselves and all of those in your orbit. I'm Stan Friedman, wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.